You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Started this series every week, pretty much, saying nothing good ever happens by accident, right? You've got to be intentional. If you want good results in your life, you've got to be intentional. You've got to have a vision. The Bible says it this way, without a vision, the people perish. They lose track. They wander on their own. And, and you and I are kind of prone at times to wander. Uh, I love nature shows. How many of you watch like Nat Geo Wild or Animal Planet or National Geographic? Or you love like nature shows. Okay, there's a couple of us in here. Uh, how many of you in here own a pet? You own a pet and you love your pet. How many of you have a demon-possessed pet? Let's be honest. A couple, yep. There's always a few, right? Well, I love nature shows largely because the natural world for me, pictures and, and, and uh, seeing the design in natural world makes me praise God for his intelligence that I very much believe there is absolute and intelligent created design that is in order that people didn't think of, that God thought of, that people observe and go, there's got to be more than just me. Like this stuff just can't happen by accident. And I love seeing those kind of things in nature. You take the hyena, for example, or African dogs. Now, I'm not sure if the hyena is a dog. I don't know what that thing is. But, but regardless, uh, hyenas have little pups. And so do African dogs. They have pups. And one of the things is in Africa, there is no refrigeration. There hasn't ever been. And you might travel to Africa and go, they don't even know what air conditioning is, right? But, but there's no refrigeration. And out in the Serengeti and other areas, what the hyena will do is it will eat the kill. It will run out. It will attack something. It will eat the kill. But the pups are too little to travel all that distance. But the pup's got to eat, right? So it eats that kill. It eats it up, and it puts it in its stomach. And then they run for long distances all the way back to where the pups are. And they arrive at the little pup den, and they throw up their food. Which is brilliant, because there's not refrigeration, right? And the puppies are, how many think that is gross? You did not come to church, right? That's just nasty, right? And, and, but that's what happens. There's no refrigeration. When, when, you know, that happens in the natural world, you go, wow, that's actually pretty intelligent because those little pups couldn't keep up. Like how many little puppies would die, right? Just because of that. And that, that it's an amazing thing in the natural world. Now, when your St. Bernard does that in your living room, not so great, right? It's just nasty. You're like, no, they, you know, they do that. And, and it reminds me of one of my favorite verses that I had from the Bible as a junior hire. Because when you're a junior hire, you look for all the funny stuff in the Bible and you kind of memorize it, right? So if you have a Bible, just, and we'll put it on the screen, Proverbs 26, 11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly, right? And you just go, if you're in junior high, that is a great verse, that is like a money verse right there. You're like, that is awesome. But some of us have friends who are like that. Some of us know people who are like that. It's like they made a mess and then they, oh, you're supposed to learn from your lesson, but they keep going back to it, right? They keep going back. And sometimes that happens with your animal. You're like, you love your pet. But then all of a sudden you like, it gets sick. It eats grass. It throws up in the backyard. But after a while it forgets. And it goes back over and starts sniffing it. And you're like on the inside banging on the window like, no, no, don't don't do that. And your dog starts eating, you know, what it left before. Like, hey, this smells like food. Even though it's like partially digested, I think I'll have seconds, right? And you're like, that's nasty. And it's just disgusting. And they munch on it and it's sick and gross and wrong, right? But then you let that dog in your house and you let it lick you and kiss you. And like you forgot, like maybe you're not too bright either, right? Why is that? Why is it that when we have a pet, and we live in a day and an age when pets are more like family members, 
than pets. Like they're not farm animals anymore, like in an agricultural society. They're, they're just pets, but, but we let them, why? Because when we're hugging our puppy and that thing licks us, we're just thinking, I love that puppy. You're not like, where has it been? Where has it licked? What does it sniff? Did it get into stuff? It's not really what you think. You're just thinking, I love my pet. But we live in a day and an age where we begin to look at people with judgment and we look at where they are, what they've done, who they've been with, what kind of mess is going on in their lives, and we determine are we going to let them love us or are we going to love them in return. What do you think about all the time? What consumes your thoughts? When your mind goes from task to wandering, where does it wander? Like, if we had, we've got some decent technology here, and if we had cameras that could zoom in on you today and, like, read your thoughts and put them up on the screen, how many of you would be out of here? Yeah, I'd be right there with you, right? Like, some of you would be like, oh, I'm so relieved. Other people have crazy thoughts too, right? That's what some of us would think. We'd be out of here. But you got to think about what do we think about all the time? If you have kids... A lot of you know, like especially if they're young and they're about this size, and maybe if they're a girl, you know what they think about because they're going to tell you all the time. You know they get up in the morning, that you're going to go through your routine, and at some point in that day, that little granddaughter, that little daughter is going to say, can we watch Moana? You just know that from the waking moment till now, it's Moana. If they like cold weather, they ask for frozen, but you know, it's whichever, warm water, you know, weather, cold weather, whichever they want, but you know what's on their mind. If you have a little boy, it might be, can we ride my bike today? Can we go to the skate park? Can we do, you know, all sorts of different things. You're gonna, you just know what they think about all the time when they're not thinking about a task. What do you think about all the time? What do you think Jesus thought about all the time? What consumed God's heart? What consumes God's thought? What did Jesus think about all the time? And what we're going to find as we look at the scriptures today, we're going to find out, number one on your outline, that what did Jesus think about all the time? Jesus thought about people. All the time, he thought about people. And what he was doing, and where he was going, and obeying the will of the Father, Jesus constantly thought about people. And what I love to see about Jesus thinking about people, Jesus thought about who they were. He thought, I love this person. Like you would say, I love my dog. I love my cat. And I'm not thinking about where it's been, what it's done. You just, I love it. And in the same way, Jesus saying, I love people. And he wasn't sitting there thinking like Santa, are they good? Are they bad? He wasn't thinking, are they clean? Are they sweaty? Are they tall? Are they short? Do they listen to Taylor Swift or Metallica or, or Luke Bryan? Or do they listen to Drake? That's not what Jesus is thinking. He's not sitting there and evaluating. He's saying, I love the person. I'm not thinking about where they've been, what they've done. He says, I love the person. Jesus thought about people. In fact, we get a glimpse into this in Luke chapter 19. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to sacrifice his life. But as he comes to the city, he doesn't think, what great architecture. He doesn't think that's the most amazing temple up there. And Jesus, as he's approaching the city, we find this glimpse in Luke 19 verse 41. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is looking ahead at the city of Jerusalem and he's so grieved because he's saying, if you would only now in this generation turn to me, then the destruction by the Romans in AD 70 would not happen to Jerusalem where the temple itself gets destroyed, gets scraped off, the massive stones of the temple get shoved off the temple mount down into the streets below. And if you go to Israel with us, you will see where massive stones have been shoved down and fall all the way down to a first century street and destroy the street because of the size of the stone being shoved off the top of the mount. Jesus is saying, if only you would turn to your Messiah. If only you would recognize that I am he. Why? Because when Jesus looked at the city, he's like, oh, this place is going to get ravaged. Judgment's coming. It's not what he thought. He thought if he would just turn to me. Jesus thought all the time about people. Well, flip back in your Bible, if you will, to Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. Luke 15 Verse 11, Jesus has just now been, in a sense, assaulted by the Pharisees. He's being verbally, they're trying to trap him. They are berating Jesus, and this is their accusation. Jesus, you're hanging out with some pretty nasty people. Jesus, you hang out with what we call tax collectors, which are Jewish people who've betrayed Jewish people. They're collecting taxes for Rome as Jewish people. And by the way, they're padding their own pockets with extras. They've rejected their nation. They're working for the enemy. Jesus, you hang out with some of those tax collectors. Oh, and Jesus, you hang out with what we call sinners. People who might be a prostitute, people who are at the the depths of life, people who are addicts, people who are at the lowest echelon of society. Jesus, you're hanging out with tax collectors and you're hanging out with sinners. And the Pharisees in their judgment are looking at people and they're saying, Jesus, do you know? Do you know where they've been? Do you know what they've eaten? Do you know who they listen to? Do you know the vomit that these people return to? So Jesus starts telling some stories. He starts telling some stories to show you and me and them what the heart of God really is. And so he starts talking about some lost things. He says, listen, there's, there's a, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, but one of them wanders off. There's one lost sheep, but the shepherd actually leaves the 99 good sheep And he goes in search and he finds the lost sheep and he picks it up and he brings it back. The the shepherd, the heart of the shepherd is to go after the one that's lost. That's the heart of the shepherd. He he goes on, he tells a story about a a widow who lost a coin and she can't find it. And there's so much value in this. In a sense, it's her life savings. And she searches all over the house for the one lost coin. She's got a couple others, but she's searching all over. And when she finds it, there's such rejoicing that she goes out and she tells her neighbors, hey, I found, I found that coin that, you know, I thought my, my life savings were gone, but I, I found it. Aren't you happy for me? And their neighbors who would love her would rejoice. And then he goes and he talks about a lost person. And in Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11, Jesus continued... There was a man who had two sons. 
And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now Jesus, when he's saying this story, you, you can't hear it because it's not written in this text. But when he's sharing this story among all the people who are listening, the Pharisees and, and the, all the people, the tax collectors, the sinners he's hanging out with, they're all there. And as Jesus is telling this story, there's a corporate gasp. <gasps> and you and I would be like, well, why, why did they gasp? I don't understand. Well, the thing is that this son is asking his father for his share of the inheritance, which especially under Jewish law, wouldn't ever happen until the father's dead. So this son is going to his father and going, you're living too long. Give me my share of the inheritance. I need money now for all the demands on my life and all the things that I want to do. Give me my share of the inheritance. And under the Old Testament law, that kind of disrespect from a child to a parent could be punishable by death. So Jesus is telling the story. There's a lost sheep. Oh, there's a lady who lost a coin. And now there's a lost son. And this is what that son did. And everybody goes, <gasps> there's a gasp. Jesus goes on. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country and there squandered all his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And again, there's a corporate gasp. <gasps> Jesus just described the worst job. It's not tax collecting. It's not being a sinner. The worst job for a Jewish person to ever do is to feed pigs. They're unclean. Every day you put yourself in the position of being unclean. You're touching pigs. They're an unclean animal. It's not good. The Greeks were the only people who raised pigs. It wasn't the Jewish people. There was no demand. They had not seen the light of bacon Praise God for grace, right? Amen. But they hadn't. And it was the most sick thing in their minds that here, he's not only feeding the pigs, but he wants to eat pig slop. There's a lot of death in the early stages of lostness. Do you realize you can, you can lose yourself in 10 minutes? But it's going to take a lot longer than 10 minutes to get back maybe to where you were. There's varying degrees of lostness. You begin when you're in a lost state to develop a distorted view of reality. If, for example, let's say Jesus was telling this story and he changed the characters. Instead of it being a father representing the father God and a son representing people like you and me. If Jesus said this was a marriage and it was a husband and a wife, if he did that in this situation, it would be like one of the other asking the other for a divorce without cause. When the son says, give me my inheritance. It's like a married couple saying, well, I wish you were dead and I get the life insurance. But what happens? In the way that the son took the inheritance and squandered it or a spouse would take the life insurance and squander it, we find ourselves in a state of lostness. And at this point, the Jewish son is in the worst condition possible. In a sense, it's like he's wanting to eat partially digested pig food. Verse 17 says this. 
when he came to his what? Senses. Everyone say that. Came to his senses. Right. You and I need to do that sometimes, right? We can all think back to points in our life where we're like, I finally got it straight. I finally woke up. I had an awakening. I have this moment. I had an epiphany where my running and my lostness stopped. I had this moment where I realized the condition of my life. And you say, dear God, how did I get to this point in my life? You know what that is? That's a moment of awakening. That's a moment of coming to your senses. So here's what happened. He said, how many of my father's hired servants got food to spare and here I am starving to death and I will set out and go back to my father and say to him now this is what the son does he starts rehearsing what's my rehearsal to get my father to take me back as a slave this is his rehearsal father I've sinned against heaven and against you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired servants so he got up and he went to his father But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Circle the word ran. If you've got a Bible, circle that. Because Jewish dads don't run. And if they do, they got to get in a very humble state. You got robes and stuff on. You either got to chuck them off or you got to pull it up and tuck it in so you can run. You could maybe shuffle and jog. But if you're an Orthodox Jewish person, you got to pull up your tassels and your robes and everything and like tuck them in and take off running. But he'd been looking for a son. When he saw the one who looked to be his son, he ran threw his arms around him and kissed him. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have, right, here's his thing. Okay, time for my speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And at that moment, his father cuts him off, stops listening to him. It's like, yeah, 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 whatever. And he turns and said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they called the DJ and began to celebrate. I don't know. All I know is they begin to celebrate, right? What does he do? The father cuts off his son. Thank you for that. I want to be a slave speech, but you are my son. In your lostness, in your distorted thinking, you've forgotten who you are. You've started to believe who everybody else says you are. You're a tax collector. You're a sinner. You've forgotten who I say you are. And sometimes when you and I run away into our lostness, we forget that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And that he wants to run to us. Jesus used a term in regard to this story in in terms of what the son was doing. Jesus didn't play it out. He didn't say all what that he did. But he uses this term. The term is wild living. He used the term wild living. Well, wild living leads you and I where we do not want to go. It traps us. It binds us with fear. It encourages distorted thinking about who we are and who is to blame and what we've got to do to get help and the only options available to us. That's what distorted thinking does. And even when the distraction of wild living had ended, this guy was still stuck. The money had run out. The wild living had run out. And now he's just in survival mode because of a famine in the land. Listen, there is a kind of lostness that no human effort 
or human rescue can solve. Jesus tells the first story. There's a lost sheep. And so the sheep is lost, but the shepherd goes and gets the sheep. A person rescues the sheep. Jesus tells the story of a coin. And there's a lady, and she's lost her coin, but she goes looking, and she goes searching, and the lady, she finds her coin. She rescues the lost coin, and it was to her own rescue, was it not? But now Jesus transitions. And he says, there's a type of wild living where you and I try to turn to someone else to fix us. And so often in our culture, we are broken people looking for another broken person to rescue us. Sometimes our culture is so in love with being in love because it, the hope underlying that is that they can compensate for what I lack. They can worship me like I worship me. They can fix me and help me in my life. And so you see people throwing away their living running to wild living, hoping that someone will see them, hoping someone will rescue them, will come along, and it will be a person to rescue them. But for this lost son, it was not a person who rescued him. It was finally when he came to his senses, he said, I need to go back to who God says I am, to my father. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and he looks, and he's like, if you... If you had only known what would rescue you, then this destruction wouldn't happen. He weeps. Why? Because Jesus thinks all the time about people. That's what he does. And Jesus starts to tell a story, these three stories, to tell you and I how to get on board with his heart. Not for things, not for adventures, not for the way world should be or how to rescue the world or politics or any other distractions. Not the negativity and the cynicism and negativity in our world, but in the negativity of our world to see people. In the problems in your marriage to see a person more than a problem and more than a problem person. He wants you and I to come to our senses. Well, what heals? What fixes? When you're not a lost sheep and you're not a lost coin where a person can step in and rescue you, what do you do? Well, if you've been in wild living and you've been lost or in a state of lostness or a state of wandering, you and I repent. Repent simply means turn back. Repent sounds like performance. Repent sounds like I got to do A, B, C, D, and then I'm good enough to go back. Jesus cuts off those arguments. Did you notice? That the son went back to the father. He had his rehearsed statement. Let me be your slave. And Jesus says, you're a son. And so he gets the finest clothing and puts it on. That's not for the servants. That's for the son. He gets the ring, the sign of authority, and he puts it on his son's hand. You are a valued member of this family. You have my full authority. You have full rights as one who would receive inheritance from a father. Sometimes we think we're like a dog. You got to come back, wilt it over with your tail between your legs, and you just think you got to like come cowering back to God. God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm so sorry for where I've been. I'm so sorry. I returned to the vomit. And God's like, I'm not asking where you've been and what you've done. I just love you. 
I want to throw my arms around you and kiss you. I want to welcome you back. I want to teach you how to live right. But I want you to know you were my son or my daughter with whom I'm pleased and who I love. Some of you in this room are saying, well, you know what? Thanks, Dave. But I can think of a lot of people who are living wild. And honestly, I'm not one of them. I haven't been. I haven't been living wild. Well, maybe not. But I want to point out that Jesus points out it's not just those who are living wild that need to come to their senses. That Jesus is pointing out that there are people who don't love people like he loves people and they need to come to their senses to get on board with the heart of God. And so he continues his story. He didn't stop. He didn't slow down. He kept going. Because in the crowd there are people who would go, that's me, I've been in wild living tax collectors, sinners. But there's another group in the crowd and that's the Pharisees who were accusing the religious elite, those who would say, we have obeyed, we have followed the law, we have done what is right, we have not walked in the rebellion of others. In fact, we've cleaned ourselves up and now we're looking down on everybody else and Jesus continues speaking. This is what he says. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The servant sounds happy, doesn't he? Good news, I'm telling you good news, right? The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. I, I want to point out something to you. The father who had been watching for the heart of his son to come to his senses, return home and ran to him is also looking for the heart of the angry, stubborn son who refuses to get on board with what God's doing. So the father who ran to his son goes to his older son. Why aren't you in here with us? Why aren't you partying with us? Why, why are you out here? Why are you angry about my grace to somebody else? And that's going to be, well, do you know what what he's eaten? Do you know what he's done? Do you know where he's been? Do you know what he wasted? Well, let's see what he says. His father went out and pleaded with him, verse 29. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes. Now, did it say anything about prostitutes before? No, this is just assumed. It said wild living before. Jesus didn't describe what wild living was. But now the younger brother says, I'm sure it was prostitutes, right? Property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I know in your outline there's a bunch of things and you're like, how are we ever going to get to the end of this outline if we've just done point one? (laughs) Can I make some observations with you? that have to do with relationships. Uh, some observations with you that have to do with marriage or uh, a person who has hurt you or that you've been wounded by but you, you still are expected to some degree to have relationship with that person. 
I want to say some of the things we see here about the heart of Jesus should reflect our heart. And oftentimes in our culture, we get convoluted. We get distorted thinking. We begin to think about me. We begin to look and judge. And, and there's something that weird that happens. Like, we want all this mercy. God, have mercy on me. And you come to Christ. And then the pendulum swings and you're like, I've been with Christ for a while. And now I'm over here and it's harder for me to have a compassion for those who are lost. Like you and I once were. Sometimes the pendulum swings and it's hard for a person to say, I'm a believer in God. It's hard for you to accept someone like that. In fact, chances are you might not accept yourself the way you were to become a Christian because of where the hardness of your heart has been. Maybe you see your walk with God as slaving for him. Maybe you see your walk with God as I'm obligated to do what's right. I become a Christian and there's not relationship. Jesus is saying there's more available to you than you know. You're not my slave. You've forgotten you're my son too. You think you're slaving. Your lost brother came home and he wanted to be a slave and I said no. You've been here the whole time and you've convinced yourself you've been slaving and that you're entitled And Jesus is pointing something out about relationship that was happening between the Pharisees and the people he was loving and reaching toward. And he's drawing both. He's pursuing. Please understand, Jesus is not simply accusing the Pharisees. He's he's walking toward them. He's saying, okay, I hear you, religious elite, but I'm going to walk toward you. And I, in compassion, am going to remind you of the things that God thinks about all the time. And what God thinks about all the time is people. Let me transition that to marriage. Sometimes in marriage or in a relationship that you have, maybe it's your brother or sister or roommate, someone else, a lost person, people you interact with at school or at home or in the workplace, you begin to look at those people and you begin to judge them and you begin to have an accusation against them. But I want you to know that number two on your outline, the battle in marriage is to win your thoughts to sabotage a legacy. The battle is not for who does the dishes. The battle is not for who carries the most weight. The battle is not for any of these other things that we begin to fight and argue over. The battle is not that you're neglected all the time. The battle is this. If the enemy can just convince each person in the relationship, whether it's marriage or something else, each person in the relationship, if he can capture the thoughts and make the person the enemy, then he wins. That's it. The enemy is the enemy, not your spouse. The enemy is the enemy, not the lost. The enemy is the enemy, not the people in the other political party. The enemy is the enemy, and what he wants to do is get you in your head to capture your thoughts. If I can capture your thoughts, I can invalidate a legacy. I can let Pharisees raise up other Pharisees. And I can let lost people raise up other lost people. And maybe neither one will find their way home. The battle in your workplace, in your marriage, is for your thoughts. And Jesus is dealing with two. One who thought he could never return to the Father but be a slave. And he wanted to change that thought. And the other is for the religious elite who just thought that those people weren't good enough. And Jesus is saying, you have to celebrate. 
because I'm gonna call lost people to myself all the time. And when the lost get found, we must celebrate because that's what God does. Listen, marriage is one person covenanted with another broken person. I want you to write that word covenanted because a lot of people in this day and age, you don't know what marriage means and it means a covenant that it's not a promise. It's not a vow. A vow is a weak sauce word. It's bigger than that. It's a covenant. The picture of the Old Testament dividing up of an animal and walking through saying, if you break the covenant, what happened, this animal is going to happen to you, is the New Testament picture God uses for marriage. That there's a man and woman and they come together till death do them part. And the idea is if, if we take two, if we take one and try to make them two, you often can't take what God made one and make it two because you're going to find out that there's still a lot of oneness going on. You might split your family, you might move on to another relationship, you might do another thing, but you're going to find all the time that your heart, your mind, your attachments, your relationships are still attached. And in our world just says, hey, if there's two and they're not working out, if there's, you become one and it's not working out, just, just divide. Take your losses and go to something else. Find a person to rescue you. I'm so proud of this church. This year I've seen so many marriages that felt like they were on the brink. Finding each other, coming together, not all. There's still a lot of us who are having work to do, right? But I'm so proud of our church watching so many people this year who've just said, we got to get back to the heart of God and that the enemy is not my spouse. The enemy is the enemy and the battle's for my mind. On your outline number four, I want you to fill in this blank. Currently, I respond to people or my spouse like which brother? Are you the lost son, the, the prodigal, the one who ran away? Or are you like the one who stayed at home and is judging other people? I want you to write down which one you were most like. You don't have to turn this in. This is for your own keeping. And then number five, I want you to circle one in all honesty. God is drawing me to come to my senses. That's one or two. God is pursuing me to love and to respect someone who has hurt me. Why do I think the enemy's agenda is a lot bigger than we think? Here's why. Because I believe with all my heart, number six, people fighting each other have a hard time being available for God's work. Man, if you're, if you're fighting in your, in your impressions, your ideas against people who are so very much not like you, are you going to be very likely available to share the good news of Jesus with that person? No way. If you're in a relationship with somebody and you're fighting each other all the time, it's really hard for you. It'd be better for you to stop fighting each other and start fighting for the kingdom of God. To start remembering him and being available for God's work. Number seven, nothing good ever happens by accident. You must be intentional to forgive and celebrate what God celebrates. Our job is to get on board with what God is doing. He's going to be the initiator. He's going to be the vision caster. He's going to be the one who takes the lead. And our job is to get on board with he's, what he's doing. And what he's doing is having a heart for people. So we need to come along to forgive and to celebrate what God celebrates. This week, we've got a podcast uh, by a bunch of our um, 
There's some different couples in our church who work with our men and with our women. And they're gonna talk about marriage issues. Like, how do, you, how do you make it last? Like, what do you do when you face really tough stuff in your marriage? And during the week, there's this video podcast that we would love for you to watch. And it's people in our church who just have been down the road a bit and just to talk about what makes that happen. And, and I want you to be encouraged. If you're in a relationship that that's something you're like, I need to write this down. I need to watch that video podcast this week. Because it's gonna go deeper into some of the reasons that God loves people and how to work things out when you're in very real, difficult circumstances in your marriage. Let's take a moment, just think about our own lives. You've already written down which brother you most represent or you look like or where your condition of your life is right now. Will you bow your heads, just close your eyes. And then the reason I'm asking you to do that is so you just think about you. And maybe right here in this room right now, there's some of you who are just like, I- I've been dialed in. I know my theology. I've been following the Lord, and yet you've just allowed the condition of your heart to want to escape the world, escape from messy people, escape from the damage that you see. And God's saying, get on board and celebrate when I bring lost people to you. In fact, I want to use you to reach some. Maybe that's you. My guess is there's a lot of us in this room who would identify with the lost son, And maybe here today, for the first time, you're realizing the only way to be saved from your sin is to give yourself to the one who died for you. It's Jesus Christ. He took your sin in his suffering on the cross, and he canceled out God's wrath against it. That by faith, by choosing to say yes to Jesus, by believing in what Jesus did on the cross, by that you earn the right to be saved. It's through giving faith, not having a faith. It's through giving faith to what Jesus did that that's the only way that you could be saved. You're not coming to a person to rescue you. You're coming to God become flesh who gave it all for you. And if that's you here today and you want to say yes to Jesus, then right where you're seated, just pray a prayer like this after me. Jesus, today I say yes to you. I ask you to let me be your son or your daughter. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin that you were buried, that you rose to new life. I ask you to clean me up and make me a new creation, forgiving all my sin and celebrating that I would step toward you, God. Jesus, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for what you're doing in our lives and in our church. Even right now, God, there are some of us in this room who would say, God, I've I've been avoiding people. I've been avoiding the mess. I've been in judgment on them. And if I'm just being honest with myself, I've been leaning toward looking like my relationship with you is less of a relationship and more of an obligation. And God, I want to respond to your heart for people this week. Would you pray that? God, I want to respond to your heart for people this week. God, right now, my prayer this week and today has been that we would come to our senses. Whether we've been in wild living or whether we've been in perceived safety but obligation. God, would you help us to come to your senses, to love the things you love, that we would be intentional because nothing worth celebrating ever happens by accident. So God, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And we together said, amen. Awesome.
Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.